Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the RIA Edge podcast. This is the time and the place where we interview executives who are on the forefront in growing the business of financial advice. This is the place where we hear from folks working for or with registered investment advisory firms that are, according to our analysis anyway, not just growing, but growing in a sustainable way and with strategic intention. As we like to say here, firms that are growing by design and not by default. Of course, there are lots of paths up that mountain, and my guest today is going to help us map it out. Rob Medor is the vice president at Marshberry, a consultant in the financial services space, and according to my crack research team, a former professional hockey player. So maybe we could talk to him a little bit about that. <laughs> but we've worked with Rob and his team at Marshberry on a pretty extensive research project here at wealthmanagement.com through our partners at WMIQ which sought to discover how RIAs view growth opportunities, how they're preparing their growth plans, how they're executing on growth strategies, how they're accommodating what in some cases can be a pretty substantial jump in the size and complexity of their firms. So Rob, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast to talk this through. Thanks for having me, David. <clears throat> Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I appreciate it. We've had had some uh, a, a long partnership here with uh, some of this research that we're doing and continue to do with you all at Marshberry. You know, and I, I think I want to maybe start off by thinking, you know, probably about this time last year, maybe about the time that we first started talking about this research, you know, there was a thing, a feeling in the air that a recession was imminent, right? A historically unprecedented acceleration in interest rate hikes was coming. Uh, yet growth expectations that we saw from the research for REAs, their own growth expectations were only tempered modestly. You know, I think that was one of the top line takeaways. Uh, REAs still seem to have a pretty sunny view of how they're going to grow in the future. Any any reflection on that on, on how you know that what that says about future growth opportunities for RAs going into twenty twenty four? Well, I'm certainly never against positivity. I think um, the 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 challenge for RAs is 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 truly you know looking at themselves and and growth and where it's coming from not not over the last five or seven years, but kind of using the the change in the market to kind of you know lay bare where where it's actually coming from and how much of that they control and how much is market driven. So I'd say it's great to see that that uh you know that positive outlook, but I think it it warrants if you're if you're the CEO, the president, COO of of a firm, it warrants you kind of pulling back the sheets and saying, uh, where's this actually coming from? Is this is this growth that that we're actually driving or is this growth that's just kind of falling into our lap because we build a nice base of clients? Right. And and for a long time, that was kind of the, you know, it's what we got almost growth by default, right? I mean, for the past 10 years, everyone was a genius in this space because the markets just kept going up and up and up. And so did the revenue. The it's it feeling that there was going to be a bit of a reckoning here in the markets. Maybe that's not coming to pass. I don't know. You know, the it doesn't seem like the advisors uh, viewpoint has changed that much. Did that surprise you in the study or? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah ab absolutely. It does. It, I mean, if you're, um, if you're a student of the game, so to speak, it's hard to ignore, not just, 
a study like this, but there are a number of, of great studies that, you know, kind of come out quarterly. And I think what you have found, and I'm generalizing here, but what, but what these studies are finding is that RA growth is, has actually been pretty low. And the kind of the, the benefit that I and, and others on my team and others that kind of exist in a similar position in the industry have is you get to really dig deep with your clients and look at kind of the financials and pair qualitative, quantitative. And I'd say that the vast majority of the cases are in line with the the findings of those studies versus kind of the the hopes and dreams that I think we're finding more in 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 the results of this one. Right. So Take me back then. So this has been a debate for a long time, the notion between organic and inorganic growth, uh, you know, and and certainly advisors are hit with all kinds of messages about growing organically. Um, yet we kind of look at the market as a whole and wonder, is there any organic growth to be had or is it just kind of cutting up the pie in different ways? I, what, are, what are your thoughts on organic growth? Yeah, I'd, I'd say I am bullish on the ability for, for firms to drive it. And I'd actually say that, you know, to borrow something from one of my one of my colleagues who I really respect, Kim Kowalski, you know, it's really about setting a strategy and then executing on a strategy. And I think if you do that, you actually can drive new client growth and you can drive, uh, you know, what we would term as organic growth, but it's... You know, it's the simple things that are hard sometimes. Um, and I, again, I'll stress like this is not. All right. Now, you know, David, RIA owner, you need to come in tomorrow, January 1st, because you're focused on organic growth. You need to be picking up the phone and kind of, you know, looking at a, you know, a virtual phone book and then just and dial in 100 names a day. I don't think it's that. I mean, it's even simple things like paying attention to, you know, centers of influence and, building a culture of referrals and focusing on the client experience to kind of enable that. So there's, there's multiple ways to create this organic growth, you know, that new client growth outside of, you know, you need to become a, a cold calling machine. Right. Right. Interesting. The notion of centers of influence and relying on those for organic growth. One of the things I thought was surprising out of the study that we found it seems that digital marketing or, or growth through digital channels seem to have dropped in importance with advisors, you know, and, and any reflection on why that might be, it, it seems that advisors have been told for a few years now that, you know, got to get your digital marketing machine mm -hmm. up and running. That's going to be the way. Of it. You know, I have my, I have my suspicions and nothing is based on, you know, more fact than I find in a study like we, we all did together you know, or others in the industry, but, you know, sometimes I wonder if it's, um, it's a departure back to what used to be normal, right? When you think about a lot of these high end RIAs that have, that hold a lot of assets, have great client trust, you know, how did they build their business, whether that was 15 years ago, 10 years ago, or even kind of pre COVID, um, I would imagine that the vast majority of them were doing so with in-person uh, type events, mm -hmm. outreach. And I, I tend to wonder when the market, 
you know, when the market fluctuates and you don't see the kind of growth you have over the past, you know, five or seven years, and you've invested a little bit more, you know, maybe over the last 18, 24 months in digital, I wonder if you kind of return to what was normal pre-COVID and say, this is how I built my business. I'd like to kind of go back to what was working in the past if I have, you know, if I have the, the desire to increase growth you know, organizationally. And I think the other thing is, and this is more of a, a talking out loud as opposed to, as opposed to a hard and fast number, but in my opinion, digital marketing and digital efforts are something that have a cumulative effect on, um, you know, brand awareness and, and new client growth. And so, you know, maybe the question for you, David, is how, do, you, do you think it's a reflection that maybe the patient's to allow those channels to really be leveraged to their maximal abilities is, is not necessarily there with the average owner, right? If, if you're spending dollars and cents, it's a lot easier to, to say, hey, I had eight people at a dinner than it is to say, I got 200 impressions on, on LinkedIn campaigns that we're, we're running and have been running, right? One is a little more tangible feeling and one may actually have greater impact, but you just don't know when it's coming through. So my question to you would be, do you think, you know, do you think that means that there's probably a, a more patience needed on some of these? Because I don't, I don't think one channel is the is the key. But let me stop and let yeah. me answer. No, I think that, that that's exactly right. It reminds me of the old uh, adage that they used to say in advertising. You know, fifty percent is wasted. We just don't know which fifty percent, right? <laughs> that's uh, good. So it's something that you kind of in that, and I think maybe this is why it's dropped in importance. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's dropped in the study in usage, but yeah, maybe some fatigue in a, a realization that the channel has to be there. You have to show up in those spaces. You know, anyone who stumbles across an advisor looking for a, a, a relationship, even if they're referred by a COI is going to, first thing they're going to do is check out the Google and, uh, and see where you pop up as an advisory firm. So those channels are, you know, have to be there, but maybe the realization you're right. Some sort of fatigue is setting in where it's not seen as the panacea. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I think it's, there's always a tendency, doesn't matter what type of business you're in. There's always a tendency to look for the easy button. And right. um, I don't, I mean, if one exists outside of the Staples commercials, I certainly haven't found it, but I, <laughs> if you have, you know, please let me know. So it, from the research that we've done, and we're not going to go through the the details of the research here. I mean, the folks listening who are interested can certainly find it and download it on our our website. You know, all the data is there, and it's it's a it's an interesting read. The gathering what we did with that data. If I were to ask you, I'm an advisory firm. I'm setting off on a growth strategy here. Uh, I want to accelerate growth. Uh, I don't know which way to go. I don't know the avenues to choose. What would you tell me? What is the, uh, what, what, how would you advise me? You're, you're, you're bringing the million dollar question up front, huh? Now, <laughs> so I'll, I'll take probably an unorthodox approach to that, which is the first thing, you, at least in my opinion, the first thing you need to do if you want to grow sustainably and not just in the short term, but over the long term is you have to look at your own business and say, one, are we prepared to, to, to actually support this growth? Right. It's kind of the chicken or the egg problem, right? Do we do we build the client base and then figure out how to support it? Or do we build the support and figure out 
you know, figure out where the clients come from. But I'd say you look, especially for the firms that, you know, traditionally listen to these, right? You've got the 500 million, the billion, the billion plus, a lot of really good firms and growing firms. You already have an established client base and that's, that's where you start. Um, or at least that would be my recommendation is before you start thinking about where you're investing dollars to improve and, and to continue growing, you want to look at, at your client base, right? Where did they come from? Who are you serving? Well, um, you know, it's the, it's the, the old client segmentation, right? Be, becoming experts in, uh, who you want to serve and how you serve them and how you serve them best will allow you to then figure out where you get more of them. I think that's that, you know, that's the place to start, uh, for me. Yeah, that makes sense. And the, it also strikes me that there's a, maybe for firms that are still led by principals, founders, the entrepreneurial spirit there is probably to take the, uh, shoot first, ask questions later approach, right? Where no you're constantly, constantly putting out fires and you're constantly, you know, you, you, it's like you kind of leap before you think a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it, you had kind of brought up the sports angle, which we certainly can dig into. And I'm sure I'll, I'll make a few jokes at my own expense, but you know, the, the, when I was playing sports, what you heard a lot of trainers, coaches say to some of their most talented athletes, which I, you know, I was very rarely one is they'd say, you know, sometimes it's about working smarter and not working harder. And I think that applies here, which is, you know, to achieve organic growth, you, you first have to understand like where, you, where you want to grow in terms of, of clients. And so, you know, by doing that, you enable your firm, your advisors, your people, anyone you hire, you know, who are going to be a, a, a driver of that organic growth to know where to find them, how to find them, how you serve them, right? It, it minimizes the wasted effort and, and you know, having to fix, like you said, right? You, you run so fast, sometimes you have to fix things down the road and you're never going get, to get away from that. But I think in this case, if you've built a successful practice, you have a nice client base, you have all the tools, you know, to, to determine that next step for, for organic growth and it exists within your clients. Let's talk about M&A then as an avenue for growth. Uh, so My favorite. Yeah, that's the uh, that's that's the one, right? I mean, I think that's what's been driving a lot of the growth that we've seen in the industry for sure. You know, this space, uh, the independent wealth management space is a, a billion stars that are kind of quickly coalescing around a few big, yep. bigger planets. Talk to me about the M&A market as it stands now and what you see when you look out there. Are, are, are we seeing a slowdown? Are we seeing an acceleration? What's mm -hmm. What's happening? I think just kind of starting big picture, you know, this is not, this is certainly not the uh, first industry to ever go through some sort of consolidation. Uh, you know, it's happened for, for years and years with railroads and, you know, mom and pop grocery stores. And, and, um, uh, and so this is a fairly natural thing. And so you can kind of look at other industries. Like I think David, you and I have talked about before, um, and say like, what's, what's happening here? Where are we? And I often reference the Harvard business kind of consolidating industries follow, you know, four phases. And so it's very natural for a, for, for an industry to go through this where it's, you know, it starts out with kind of a fragmented industry. And then, you know, in phase two, you start to see um, the start of consolidation and, and increasing acquisitions and capital flowing in. 
you know, phase three is building the actual platforms and making the, the, the things hum, right? Actually leveraging scale and, and phase four is when you have kind of, you know, you have that end stage consolidation where the big gobbled the big and you have three, you know, maybe three to five players owning 75% of the market. You know, for anyone that works in the institutional retirement consulting space, that's, you know, record keepers uh, like Empower are a great example. You know, you've got three to five that own the majority of the of the record keeping world. So that's an example of like a relatively recent, you know, phase three, phase four. So in, in when it comes to wealth management, I think, you know, we're probably solidly in that uh, in that phase two or three. And there are all sorts of outside factors certainly playing into this. You know, the cost of capital, you know, certainly does does impact it. Uh, but there's just, there are so many independent advisory shops. There's so much demand to get into this business. And there's uh, at least theoretically so much opportunity um, to create value with scale that we haven't necessarily seen, you know, that precipitous drop over the past year that may have been, you know, forecasted when the market went a little wild and interest rates went a little crazy. And, and while this year is down a little bit, it's still, you know, it's, it's, it's still only 10% or so off of, you know, that record high in, in public, you know, and I, I stress that in, in published, you know, or public transactions, because not every, not every deal is something that hits, you know, the PR newswire, you know, or wealthmanagement.com. A lot of them are peer to peer acquisitions or book purchases. And so there's a lot more, but, but, you know, the market has stayed very healthy and it will continue to stay healthy you know, in, in our opinion, over the next five or 10 years, there's just a lot of runway there. And there are a lot of factors, I would say, even increasing the supply, you know, over the next few years. Did you tease anything out of the research, which might suggest firms approaching M&A, making that decision, the ones who are doing it in the right way versus the ones who are just kind of, like we said before, kind of pulling Curious. the trigger and thinking about it afterwards. As, as far as acquirers, I, I think there's, um, you know, that probably before we talk about some of the key pieces of the data or stats we, you know, pull out of that, I think it kind of, you almost need to pull back too and then start to, you know, start to define M&A or succession from, I'll, I'll call it from the seller's lens because that's oftentimes where I work. Mm -hmm. And, and you say like, how much of this is, is I have to sell my business or it's like kind of a forced thing versus how much of it's strategic. Right. So like why we talked about like, where are we in this consolidation of the industry and what's going to happen? But you know, why, why are firms selling? I think is the other key piece before you get mm -hmm. into, you know, what's the, what's the study telling us about you know, how these firms are planning on on going about it over the next, we'll call it anywhere from one to five years. And the why, and I'd be curious for your thoughts on this too, David, but you know, the why that we often see is it's uh, the difficulty in doing so internally, right? Most uh, most of the firms that I work with have the the intentions of transitioning their business to a successor that's already in-house or, or, you know, kind of that gen two advisor, gen three, or even a team of them. The second is growth, right? It's, it's a, it's a challenge to grow. Like we've talked about. And sometimes the only way to access certain levels of growth, like custodial referral programs is to be a part of something that's much, much bigger. Mm -hmm. 
And, and the third is, you know, a, a future for, for their people. I mean, we didn't, you could probably say a fourth is the, the ability to kind of monetize a life's work, right. And, uh, you know, or take some chips off the table, but it's really, you know, it's growth of the firm, it's growth for their people, or it's, in, you know, an inability to actually transition internally. And I think that with, within each of those, you've got kind of a blend of, do, of the, do I have to do this as a business owner? I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, David? Yeah, no, I, th- I, I, I like that framing. I think that's correct. I, for a long time, it seemed the uh, decision to sell your firm was a monetization opportunity at the end of the career, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, you've, you've built this thing and you're going to retire, so you sell it. I, I don't, that seems to be, it's almost like the industry seems to have kind of matured beyond that a little bit. I don't know how many willing buyers there are for firms that seem to be kind of at the end stage of the principal's involvement, right? I mean, a lot of times those firms are are decumulating older clients. You know, I, I just I just don't know how, how valuable they are anymore. But that notion of uh, not being able to find an internal succession is what's interesting to me. You're right. I mean, most people seem to say the way that I'm going to do this is by selling it to transitioning it to a junior advisor. Why do you think that's so hard for folks to pull? Well, there's a, there's, there's a number of reasons and and some are more quantitative and some are qualitative in my experience. And, you know, the easiest to talk about is the, is the quant, right? You know, the last 10 years, unless you're, you know, unless you were living under a rock, you realize, you know, one, there's a lot of consolidation and two, the values for good firms just continues to rise. Right. I'd say valuations as a whole are, are maybe plateauing and it's the best firms that are getting the high, uh, high multiples versus, you know, once upon a time, there's this phrase in, you know, investment banking. It's like, if you can fog a mirror, you can get a high multiple. You know, we're not really, we're not necessarily in the, you know, in that, that landscape anymore, <clears throat> but there, there are still these great values for, for top firms, but just unpacking that a bit in relation to internal. Because uh, you know, in the I think one of the stats we found in this too, and I, I may misquote it, and I'll need you to correct me, but it was somewhere in like thirty-five-ish percent of of firms that are involved in a transaction, there's some sort of an internal, and and even if you dig, you know, into this most recent one we've done, there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, intention to do internals. Mm-hmm. So if you if you think about the growth of the overall value, let's like compare. Uh, internal versus external, right? There's always going to be a discount. And it, it starts with understanding, you know, how these transactions are are undertaken, right? And external, you find a strategic partner, you find the fit, and it's a little more of a business transaction, right? You're going to look at a pro forma, you're going to figure out what your business is worth, you're going to figure out how you fit inside this new business and what kind of additional value they can add you know, to your firm. And then ultimately you're going to choose whether you're doing it with just one or you're doing it with multiple, you're going to choose based on some blend of financials, fit, culture, you know, what makes sense for your clients, what makes sense for your people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it's a, it's a lot more of a quantitative exercise when it comes to the value of the firm. You don't have to do it. You don't have to sign the papers, right? On an internal, it's a little bit different because you've got 
you know, it's, it's kind of more of the handshake, right? You need to have two or, or multiple willing parties. You know, you can look at all the stats and say, and I know there's a, a number of them, but you know, it's somewhere in the high, the high thirties, maybe around 40% is the average discount between an external transaction and an internal transaction. But it's great to have that number in hand. But at the end of the day, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a, uh, the owner of a firm, I need to go to my gen two or gen twos, the, the David Armstrongs of my firm. And I need to say, Hey, David, you know, I want you to, to, to take this business from me. I want you to buy me out. You need David's buy-in on that, right? You can't force David to do anything. So it's great to have that 38, 40% number in your mind. But at the end of the day, it's about finding something that works for, for both of you, right? It's yeah. gotta be that handshake. It's gotta be that agreement. <clears throat> and, um, and that's only become more difficult over the past, you know, five or seven years because the market has continued to rise, right? Most fees are somewhat correlated with the market. So that means your, your fees continue to grow, your revenues continue to grow. And therefore, even if the multiple, the external multiple you're receiving is, you know, is stagnant, right? Your growth doesn't necessarily increase your multiple. It's still creating this, this increasing delta, right? between an internal and an external. And so the longer you go without starting to transition that business, the more difficult it is because you might say, hey, I'm going to do this in three years. Well, chances are your firm's going to be worth more in three years than it is today, which makes it even even more unrealistic from an, a dollars and cents perspective to do it internally. And it's very hard as a business owner to say, you know what, I'm, I think what I'm, I'm going to do is take a you know, 40, 50, 60% discount on the business that I've built over the past 20 years. Yes, I recognize that my people have helped me build build this, but you know, that's a it's a pretty big haircut. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of risk to 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 stay involved, uh, trusting that that my generation two or generation three can actually, you know, maintain the the standing of the business and continue to grow it. The other side of that is is more qualitative, but let me just stop and let you sound like you may have wanted to say something there. No, no, I it's, I was it's a pretty substantial discount, and then when you add on to that the time commitment that a lot of the internal transitions take, uh, and a lot of the effort that internal transitions require, I, it just you're right. I mean, the, the the calculus doesn't necessarily favor it. Now, yeah, and and the, the risks, right? You know, an internal term typically 20 30% down a buyout over 5 or 10 years right it's a you know a lot of it fi financed through cash flow it, you know there's there's risk involved and it's not necessarily the the like the total handoff you know total de-risk or or majority de-risk that a lot of owners get to when they get into their late 50s early 60s the other side of it is the the employees themselves right like we we like to say that if you're going to do an internal succession, it's not a point in time effort, right? It's not just you wake up one day and say, I'm going to turn my business over to, you know, to, to David, my, my junior advisor, who's been with the firm for five or 10 years, right? It has to be something that um, is ongoing. It needs to start probably 10 years earlier. Uh, because you need to overcome and and these hurdles in regards to 
you know, the attitudes and the willingness to take on risk from employees, right? Most of, most of the, uh, the generation two, if you're kind of generalizing across the RIA industry, were brought on as employees. And, mm -hmm. you know, the, the owner or owners, primary owners, uh, had already kind of built that stable base where they're able to provide a little less of a risky proposition in joining the firm where it's, you know, the, the, the employees aren't necessarily the entrepreneurs that the founders were. And so they're not as comfortable with risk. And it's, and, and the reason I say it's not a point in time thing is just saying that David Armstrong, you're the, you're my gen too. Like if I come to you, um, tomorrow and say, Hey, David, I'm really excited to have you buy me out. You are my successor. Here's how it's going to look. It doesn't matter if you give them a, you know, a 50% discount, a 60% discount, a 30% discount on the external value of your firm. It's still a significant increase in, in risk. There may be some sort of personal guarantees from them, right? It's, they, they have to figure out like, it doesn't matter if it's a hundred thousand dollar a cost or a $10 million cost, right? It's still a, uh, it's, it's still a shock. It's still a change in mindset for a lot of these employees who haven't necessarily been, been given the, the leadership reins, you know, strategic control or had to have taken on, you know, that risk where they're going home at night to their husband or their wife and saying, Hey, honey, I'm really, uh, we're really growing. I'm really believing in what we're doing. And for that reason, I'm, taking out a loan and using the house as collateral. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's kind of a total, it's a total shift for a lot. And that's why it needs to be trained, uh, you know, over 10 years. Yeah. A difficult road for most. So let's say the principal or founder or owners of a independent firm are then maybe thinking, okay, internal succession is not the way uh, we're going to sell ourselves on the open market. I, my view is that the, you know, we talk about how valuations really haven't come down that much for advisory firms, but the buyers have gotten a lot more sophisticated. Would that be something you'd agree with? Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. So what is a firm that wants to position itself for a sale? What do they need to think about? Uh, and and what, are the, what, are the, what are the characteristics of the firms that, you know, uh, succeed uh, and get the valuations they're looking for versus those that aren't? Well, if, I, I'm always a fan of making things simple and we could probably go into minutiae. And I, I really enjoy what I do, just like you do, David. So we probably we could be on here for hours and hours, and no one would ever listen to the podcast. But um, you know, if to to make this really simple, one is growth, right? Is this firm growing? Is it growing above market? Like that that is the that is the key. It doesn't matter if it's a peer to peer acquisition. You know, this is something that that we actually saw in some of the data we worked on together, David. Is you know, growth is the main driver for acquisitions firms want to acquire other firms that are growing or merge, right? You know, depending on how you structure it, they want to merge or acquire other firms that are growing. And the second is people, right? So we, we just spent five or seven minutes talking about, you know, the generation two advisors and, and how difficult it is to transition it, which I will emphasize, it is possible. It just takes mm -hmm. a lot of intentionality and a willingness to, to get it done on both sides. But, um, the Gen 2 advisors and, and staff, those who serve your clients and those who are going to be there speaking to a business owner long after you're gone, those are actually some of the primary drivers of the value of your firm. So it's always a, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of on a knife's edge at times, right? You got to, 
you got to make sure, you know, you keep them happy, you engage them, you bring them into, you know, into the growth of the firm. So everyone's kind of growing together, but at the same time, like, you know, because you can't lose them because they're such a key part of your, your, uh, your firm's value. And at the other time, you know, on the other hand, you have to always keep in mind, like, it's, it's really hard to bring them in, but, but to directly answer your question, it's growth and it's people. Yeah. I was surprised to see the, uh, acceleration of culture, cultural fit jumped to such yep. high level of importance among firms. I always kind of have been suspicious of culture as kind of a squishy word that uh, that yep. discussion kind of went away when the checkbooks came out, but it's really <laughs> not, right? It's it's not. I mean, it, 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 it is a real tangible element. Yep. Well, and I think it's something that's very achievable for, for any, whether you're an acquirer or someone looking to sell your business or merge your business, it's really achievable right now because there's so much option, you know, there's so many options out there, whether you're looking for a strategic, a partial, you know, a merger, like there are, there are so many options out there. Like it doesn't have to be, I, you know, I give up the money and it's either money or it's, it's fit, you know, it can be, it can be a measure of both and sometimes a, a perfect fit in both. And I, I totally agree with you, David. I feel like, um, I feel like SEO might have picked up on culture in RIAs once upon a time. And so we, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, we're almost, it's, 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 uh, you know, it's the wealthmanagement.coms and others out there. There's lots of, there's lots of talk about culture, right? Half, half the, uh, half the M&A panels at, at the conferences are talking about the importance of culture, but I think it's like a, what, what does that actually mean? Uh, that's the yeah. challenge. Uh, but I am, I am, I am as a firm that, that focuses a lot on fit, you know, I am encouraged by seeing that the, the world is starting to wrap their heads around that. As another, another old saying on that too, is like, you know, if you think the marriage is expensive, like wait until you see the divorce. <laughs> and that's kind of pretty applicable here in regards to culture and, and, and M and a, which is, it's a, uh, it's a lot more difficult to unwind a bad one because you didn't find the right cultural fit than it is to just do your due diligence up front. Yeah. One of the, um, uh, one, of, one of the phrases you used in our, our prep call here was acquisition as a crutch. Yep. What do you mean by that? So that kind of goes back to what we started talking about. And, and I think it's really relevant too, because if you look at the data, I think it was, that what the data was saying from this most recent study we did is about 86% of firms, if I was reading it right, had intentions of, of doing something in the next year in regards to a, you know, merger, sale, buyout, debt, equity raise. So there's a vast majority that are thinking about doing something. And then 98% are planning on doing something in the next five years. So just about every person that responded is looking to do something right. with their firm yeah. over the next five years. So it's really relevant that this this term this uh, point, which is if your firm is not necessarily growing on its own, it may make sense to figure out why that is and to fix that before you go out and start to try and acquire as the strategy for growth. And I would point to the largest, you know, successful national acquirers, integrators, aggregators, however you decide to term them and say they are all growing 
heavily through acquisitions, certainly, but they're not, they're not like foregoing organic growth. It is a combination of the two. And if you bring that down to the independent individual level, what I, what I am trying to emphasize, I would say, is that M&A and acquisitions will not fix any of the structural issues that are preventing you from growing in the short term. It may actually just, you know, kind of paper over the cracks in the short term and over the long term end up crumbling things. So that's, you know, that's kind of what I referenced there. And I know we could certainly dig into that, but it's, it's M&A is certainly a way to grow, but you got to have a really strong foundation if you want not just your first acquisition, but all subsequent to, to actually be successful. Right. So this is, you, you got to set the table beforehand, you know, before you go out into the market. 100%. And, and I guess, I guess my question about, uh, you know, if in your experience, the buyers are getting more sophisticated, I'm sure you see some wild swings in valuations between firms that have that table set and firms that don't, uh, you know, I mean, everyone wants the number, right? What is the number? What's the number? Uh, I'm, I'm, I guess I won't try to pin you down on a, on an actual valuation metric, although I'd love it if you had one. Um, but, uh, given the, the wide disparity in there, can you reflect a little bit on, on how, that, how much of the swing you've seen out there in the marketplace? In valuation? May, if I was going to give you an actual number, I might have to go back to my compliance team and get it, get it approved. <laughs> Let me, um, cause we got plenty of data on that too. I just, but, uh, in regards to the kind of the, the variance, right. I mean, we, we spoke about it briefly, which is once upon a time, you know, five or seven years ago, when things were really getting going, and maybe even into, you know, all the way up into 2022 at times, you know, there was such a demand, there's so much capital available that you may not have had to be, you may not have had to have, call it, you know, nine out of the 12 value drivers. Like we, we like to look at 12 value drivers for, when we're representing a firm or helping someone kind of plan out their acquisition strategy, you know, maybe it was, or let's, let's actually go to sports. Cause I like sports, right. You could say uh, in baseball, you've got the five tool players, right. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of how you look at a player. If you're a scout, I would just, the, 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 what I would say is there is a wide variance now between a five tool player and a four tool player. Whereas maybe a year to five years ago, not necessarily the same variance, right? You know, four tools getting treated as a five tool and a three tool is getting treated as a four tool. So it's just, it, there's a shift to quality and that has certainly changed. I would say more of the variance comes like when, when you say sophistication, a lot of the times sophistication comes, it comes with partnering with outside capital. And that could be, kind of like, you know, the Oak Streets of the world who are helping firms finance acquisitions, you know, where now you kind of have that someone else kind of looking over your shoulder and kind of helping you manage and you're really managing the business as a business that actually mm -hmm. improves and, and makes you more sophisticated in your acquisition strategy because you have to be, you know, you have to look at how a firm is, are they accretive or not accretive to you on a, a financial basis? Um, and it starts to, to, to hone what you're looking for, but, but more so when you look at kind of the, 
the firms that have institutional private equity behind them, you know, those are the most sophisticated buyers because, you know, oftentimes they're partnering with firms that have uh, a lot of M&A expertise on the private equity side. And, and they, they typically bring that down to the local level. Uh, and so you see a lot of sophistication and then there's, there's naturally a learning curve, you know, a firm that's never done an acquisition, you know, it's, you don't know what you don't know. They may not know what to ask, <laughs> you know, for their first acquisition, but by their fifth, you know, they know to ask different things on lines of revenue. They're going to know to, to talk about different pieces of technology and understand like what is, what's easy and what's hard to transition you know, they're going to understand about how to uh, transition between, you know, accounts between custodians if they need to be. Um, so so the, I think the sophistication comes from a combination of of what the, where the capital's coming from, right? Is it out of the partner's pockets or are, the, are they leveraging debt or maybe, you know, some sort of uh, uh, institutional capital behind them? Uh, and the other is just, is just uh, you know, riding the bike. <laughs> the longer you yeah. ride the bike, the better you get at it. So, and then that certainly has driven, you know, the capital itself has driven the, a, a lot of the variance too. It's, it's very hard to compete as a, as an independent firm, um, on dollars and cents with, uh, a firm that has institutional money behind them. Right. For sure. It, it strikes me and we're kind of running up against our time here and mm -hmm. more question, but it, it strikes me that, uh, the valuation drivers that you talk about the 12 and i think we can you know intuit what they are and, and they're sure. you know yeah. they're in the research study um you know, growth people etc i guess when i talk about a more sophisticated buyer your analogy is a good one the the notion of getting your house in order having your business processes clear uh having your growth trajectory sustainable makes you a valuable acquisition target, maybe not for every buyer, but for the right buyer, right? We, we talk about a lot of acquisitions take place now because firms are looking for specific skill sets or specific uh, entry into specific uh, client demographic. Yep. Uh, so it, it the notion of, of tidying up the house so that you'll be uh, attractive to every buyer is maybe not the right way to look at it. Oh, you want no, to definitely, definitely not. Agreed. You got to find the right fit, you know, mm -hmm. I, and I would say something that's always easy to understand is like, you know, what, what clients do you serve? Right. Again, going back to where we started in, in regards to growth is what clients do you serve and, and how does a, a potential partner firm, if you're looking at an acquisition or, or excuse me, being acquired or merging, it's, are they serving the same types of clients? How are they serving them? Are they doing it the same way? Uh, you you don't want to go somewhere that's that's not serving your types of clients and doesn't have the offerings, you know, to support it unless you're kind of leading the charge there. You know, there's an equal yeah. there's there's an equal there, there's twelve kind of value drivers that we track uh, that drive the the enterprise value for a you know for a seller, but there's another twelve you know that sellers should be evaluating buyers on too. Yes, getting more complicated. But the opportunities aren't going away. So exactly. Rob, this has been great. I, I did want to we're pressing up against our time here. I know I've kept you too long already, but I did want to just ask you about your history with professional sports because I didn't know that until recently. Um so tell us a little bit about it. Well, I, I like to say that I think my marketing team has a, a higher opinion of my professional sports career than <laughs> than re, than reality might. But it was uh you know, I played a few years when 
I was done with school. I played hockey. And um, uh, I like to say that <clears throat> at the beginning of, of a season, you know, if you're a fan of, of your, your local team, and I played for four organizations in four years, uh, so, you know, it tells, tells you about how, how much they like keeping me around. But um, I guess I'm the millennial of professional sports. But uh, I like to say if you showed up to the preseason game and I came out onto the ice, you'd probably wonder why you paid $50 to watch the game. <laughs> but I did, I did get my Jersey and I did play four years and I was, you know, I did all right at it, but, uh, well, that's um, fantastic. Not, not everyone can say that yeah, you were a hockey, hockey player, but in Toronto Maple Leafs. I see. Yeah. So I finished up my, my last year with the, the Maple Leafs organization. So contractually with the Leafs, but you know, I played, um, throughout those four years, I kind of went up and down between levels starting in the you know, starting in the, the NHL typically at the beginning of the season and then kind of working my way down and in and bouncing between triple A, double A and triple A, kind of depending on the year and time of year. But well, um that's a I, it's an achievement. Not everyone can say that. I, I, I'll give you a story, David. My last my last year with with you know, when I was with the Leafs, like you as a player, when you go into training camp, <laughs> you um you oftentimes when you walk into your your locker the first time for the first preseason game, you can see what number the staff has given you. And typically the number that they give you is kind of an indicator of whether or not you actually have a chance to to be on the team, right? If you're, you know, if you're good and I was I was a goalie, if you're a good goalie, you're like number 29, 30, you know, 34, 33. And my last year, you know, I was all hyped up, had a good off season, walked into the, uh, you know, to the locker room for that first preseason game. And lo and behold, in my stall was the number 73. And I, I remember I called my wife and I said, I don't want to be negative and I, I will try not to. Uh, but 73 is not necessarily a great sign. <laughs> and here I am working in finance. Well, that's all right. That's all right. I mean, because they're like all the people who, uh, you know, dream of careers in professional sports at any level and never, never happens for him. So that was, that's great. It, it was great. Not many people get to do it. I was very fortunate to do so. And Rob, we're fortunate to have you on the podcast. So thanks very much for the conversation. I would encourage anyone to has an interest to uh, look for the research uh, at wealthmanagement.com uh, that we did with Marshberry. Download it. It's uh, filled with a, a, a lot of good data, uh, very enlightening. Uh, so Rob, thanks very much for the partnership and uh, thank you for joining me. Thanks, David. It's nice being with you. And this has been the RA Edge podcast. Thanks for listening. Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA benchmarking study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors, such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business and stay connected with their clients while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA benchmarking study is just one of many ways they provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com.